1: Hello and welcome to this week's Church Society podcast. Uh, my name is Tony Cannon. I'm the Church Society Regional Director for the Southeast and East Anglia. And I believe this is the first time we've had a podcast where two thirds of those involved actually have COVID, but we're brave men. We're going to fight on through. Our topic today is very pertinent following the recent General Synod decision to proceed with same-sex blessings in parish churches. Many Orthodox parishes and ministers are considering their response, and indeed, even the Archbishop of York seemed to signal that some kind of visible, structured separation will be required if the Orthodox Anglicans are to remain in the Church of England. That, of course, would have an impact on parish finances. So today we're going to be considering the process of setting up a separate registered charity in a parish church, which is independent of the Parish Council, the PCC, and therefore, in the worst case, would not be able to be taken away from the parish by diocesan authorities. Now, many of the large urban or suburban evangelical churches across the land have done this, but one more normal parish that's done the same is in the small town of Hailsham near the south coast. David Bourne was their vicar for around 17 years until he retired six months ago. And he's with me today with COVID, along with Colin Daswell, who hasn't got COVID, but who's an accountant member of the church and who's set the whole thing up. Gentlemen, welcome and thanks for okay. joining us today. Um, and David, may I start with you um, and ask you to talk us through your thinking and how you got to the agreement to set the trust up? Why and when did you start the whole process? up to the point, as it were, when Colin started doing legal things.
2: Okay, Uh, Tony, thank you. Um, This goes back uh, six or seven years. Uh, And I guess at that point, as a group of church leaders and more widely on the PCC, first of all, we were aware of the trajectory of the Church of England. We were concerned about the way things were moving. And we wanted to put in place structures to provide for the continuation of gospel ministry in Hailsham in the event of a, a meltdown in the Church of England, wanting to ensure that there would be a continuing Anglican gospel ministry uh, serving the community. So that was kind of in the background, but we were also very much aware of the congregation Um, as it grew, growing increasingly from very diverse Christian backgrounds. Uh, Many of those who were joining us didn't particularly have any affinity or identity with the Church of England as such. Many were coming as new Christians as well, again, with no such um, historic or traditional link uh, in their background. And I think for those two reasons uh, and wanting to, uh, as it were, build on the congregation's growing desire to see um, the gospel at work in the town and gospel ministry flourishing. I mean, more and more. I mean, Hailsham had had always been a uh, um, an evangelical church, but I think over the last uh, 10, 15 years had become much more more focused, much more obviously committed um, uh, to preaching the word of God, to preaching Christ, and and to growing um, a vibrant gospel church to serve the town. And one of the ways that we talked over many years on the PCC that that might happen was through multiplying gospel uh, ministry, whether that be full-time or part-time or ministry trainees but encouraging people um, to to get involved in ministry, uh, to train them in Hailsham, sometimes to send them off, sometimes to employ them within uh, the Hailsham setting. And so bringing those various strands together, it felt appropriate um, to uh, put before people how they might focus their giving on that gospel ministry, in a more in a, in a clearer in a more direct way
1: did you find that um particularly those who come from a non-anglican background were hesitant about giving to a church of england parish church
2: i think increasingly so particularly as um you know people coming not understanding how uh, synods and the like and everything else works mm. uh, hearing the headlines many of those people i think were showing particular concern about where their money was going.
1: Mm.
2: So that was there in the background but also they were really keen to see gospel ministry multiply and flourish yeah uh, at at the church and from the church to the town and to fund that directly. So it's not that they um it's not that they were against funding uh, the building and all those things that have to happen mm. but they really wanted a way to to focus their giving on on employing gospel ministers
1: well okay that, that leads me to the next question i suppose and indeed the next uh, chronological point how did you having set it up and colin's going to talk us through that in a moment yep. how did you communicate to the congregation and sort of when or in stages that there were now two different ways for them to give to the work of the gospel through hamstring parish church which okay. you've just been hinting at
2: Yeah. so uh <clears throat> Every year, um, I think I've done it pretty much most of my uh, ministry as an incumbent, um, every year we've had a kind of vision and pledge Sunday, two Mm -hmm. Sundays, uh, two or three weeks apart, uh, where we set out um, a vision uh, for where the church is going in the year ahead, where we believe God is calling us to to work and to serve. And alongside that, um, the financial implications a budget if you like, uh, for what we're going, to, what we're going to be doing, and in that, um, the, the financial paper that we sent out and the accompanying budget, we essentially gave people two options and put them there side by side. You, how can you support the work of HPC? Either mm-hmm. by uh, giving to the PCC, and the PCC giving will focus on these things, or by giving to the trust. And right. the work of the trust will focus on these things, particularly um, the support of the employment and support of staff uh, to make the gospel known.
1: Right, and I, I, my wife and I joined joined you here yeah. as member of the congregation about five years ago or so, and uh, a little while in, you asked if I would become one of the trustees there, um, and yeah, which I was very happy to do. Um, and so I suppose it was three or four years ago where you made that kind of statement really quite quite clear, wasn't it? Um, and the impact on the giving in you know, in total, did it have an impact on total giving? And it, did it have an impact on the trust giving when you made that clear.
2: Yeah. So the the, the trust, um, I think overall giving went up. Mm-hmm. Um and we saw a a movement uh, from the PCC to the trust, mm. um, I can't actually remember the exact percentage of that, but it's probably gone up a little bit year by year. So, so now I guess it would be perhaps forty percent of the overall giving goes via the trust. Um, that's direct giving as opposed to give or as opposed to money uh, coming in to the PCC from other sources. But in terms yeah. of direct congregation giving, that's probably. Um, how it works out. Now, um, over the last few years, we didn't push that particularly hard Mm. in terms of um, the crisis in the Church of England. We simply presented it as two ways, if you like, not two ways to live, but two ways to give um, in support of of HPC. And I'm sure Colin will explain how the relationship between the two works, the need to keep the trust uh, distinct, um, so it's a distinct identity um, from the PCC. So, um, uh, yeah, so, so that it's very obvious in terms of the way that where the money is going and uh, it ensures proper accountability.
1: Brilliant. Brilliant. Thank you very much indeed.
0: Now more than ever, Christians in the Church of England need to be contending for the true faith against false teaching in the church. That's why we've republished our book, Fight Valiantly, in a new, revised and expanded edition to enable all Christians to understand how they can play their part in contending for gospel faith. In this book, Lee Gatiss examines the biblical material on this neglected subject, and also helps us to consider some of the applications in the Church of England today, especially in the light of the ongoing living and love and faith process. There are many stories of people contending for the faith in different ways, including within the living and love and faith process. There's also a Bible study guide suitable for use by individuals or groups, That would be ideal to work together with your PCC or church leadership team. Fight valiantly. The new revised and expanded edition is now available from Church Society.
1: That's the point where we can turn to Colin. We need to talk to you about nuts and bolts, or at least uh, the process. Can you first of all tell us a little bit about your job and your experience in this
3: area? Sure thanks Tony, thanks for inviting me on. Um, I am a chartered accountant and I work for a practice uh, down in Eastbourne. Um, We work heavily with charities and churches uh, doing accounts preparation, um, independent examinations and audits Um, and I've got a, a qualification in charity accounting. Uh, But also we have been involved, and I've personally been involved, with forming a number of charities over the last few years uh, for various different purposes.
1: And in terms of these particular um, charitable trusts or charitable organisations that parishes are considering setting up, have you uh, done any of those other than the Hailsham one we'll be talking about?
3: I've been involved forming various charities some of them uh, are Christian-based charities looking to support ministry locally uh, and more widely Um, I've also been assisting with some of the gospel partnerships uh, and getting those set up um, as charities Uh, others that uh, provide humanitarian aid perhaps um, overseas uh, and also um, yes such trusts as the uh, the mission trust that we have in Hailsham
1: Right. Okay. Well, uh, let's let's get down to the to the nitty gritty, Colin, if we may. Um, will you just talk us through the process of the hailsham Parish Mission Trust, um, uh, step by step in layman's language about uh what you did once you'd been given the the brief, as it were, from David Bourne and the ministry team.
3: Yeah, of course. I think um, it's important. Firstly, the first step will be to decide the type of structure that your charity will have uh, and to make sure it's suitable so broadly speaking there are three different types of structure that you can have for your charity one is a charitable trust uh, and that's the traditional uh, charity that uh, has been around for many years governed by trust law there's also the option of having a charitable company and then also uh, another type of entity called a Charitable Incorporated Organization, or a CIO. And I'll just run through a few details with regard to those different structures. So for the traditional trust, uh, any property or assets that are belong to the trust are actually owned personally by the trustees, in the name of the trustees, and they hold them in trust for, for that charity. And so one of the issues potentially with that structure is that the trust itself doesn't have any legal identity. And so were there to be any issues where perhaps the trust gets into some legal difficulties uh, and things go wrong, then potentially the trustees could be personally liable for uh, for those difficulties. And so it is a, a structure which has what we call unlimited liability because it, the liability falls on the trustees. Now, to say that, that's quite rare. Uh, it is there as a as a possibility, although it doesn't happen very often at all. And the trustees can take out trustees' indemnity insurance in order to cover off um, their own liability. Um, but with that type of trust, the traditional type, it's there's a lot of trust law involved and uh, there, there can be some complexities that come up with that type of structure. So, another option is the charitable company that's
1: and, the option that you went with in Helsham,
3: is it yeah that's correct um and that is an entity that has its own legal identity so it can own property in its own name it can enter into contracts in its own name um and if there's any action brought against it then the trustees are limited in the liability that they have and the the um the company itself would be the legal person that sued. And so therefore, it gives the trustees more assurance and uh, gives them that limitation of liability. But the only disadvantage really uh, of this type of structure, it is a bit more complex, but also you have to deal with two regulators. You have to deal with Companies House because you are a registered company and also the Charity Commission. Uh, having to file accounts and other changes with both of those two different authorities, so it sort of duplicates the work a bit, and also initially means that you have to make two applications: one to the co- company's house to begin with, and then uh, to the Charity Commission. Right. The third option then is is the newest type of charity, which came about a number of years ago now under the new Charities Act. Uh, this is the Charitable Incorporated Organization, or the CIO. This is very similar to a charitable company. It has the same idea that it has its own legal identity, has a limited liability for the trustees, is able to own property. Um, but this particular organization is only registered with the Charity Commission, not with Companies House as well, which simplifies the process of making changes um, uh, within the charity is you're only dealing with one regulator but I would say it would be sensible for you in your own parish circumstances to take some advice from a solicitor from a charity solicitor to just weigh up which of those options would be best for Mm. your particular circumstances Uh, historically charitable companies have been good uh, because the CIO is quite new and some Entities didn't recognise it in the same way they did a company. So if you wanted it to own property, um, then it was often a good option to go for the company. But things have moved on. So I would certainly take an up-to-date view from a solicitor on on that particular issue.
1: OK, so either way, once you've made the decision of which uh, vehicle you're going to use, which type of charity you're going to set up, then presumably you, at Hailsham you, you took that decision but you then had to make it happen with the terms of what the trust was meant to do. Can you talk us through that?
3: Yeah. So the next step would be then that you would have to draw up a constitution, a set of rules, and they will be different depending on the type of vehicle you've chosen. Um, If we went, if I talk firstly about the charitable incorporated organization, the CIO companies house, sorry, not companies house, the charity commission actually provide templates for Trusts and CIOs uh, of constitutions, which give you the basic building blocks uh, for what you need to be included in there. And I would certainly, when I'm setting up a charity, start with that as my starting point. The, mm-hmm. the templates provided, they're provided both in Word and as a PDF, so you can edit them.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: So the first thing, you, the two important things that you need to consider when when drawing up the constitution which is laying down all about how the charity functions who its trustees are what the powers are that they have etc is the first thing is that you have to insert your charitable object so what does the charity exist for and for a a charity such as the mission trust uh, we had the charitable object of simply that it was set up to spread the christian gospel in in the area of Helsham and surrounding uh, a very broad um statement which could involve any any kind of activity that um that was there to spread the message of the gospel and it's good to keep that broad secondly you you want to include in your governing document your constitution a statement of faith so you need to spend some time working on what your statement of faith is And that is normally included as an appendix to the constitution. And then within that constitution, you would say that your charitable object is to um, achieve uh, spreading the gospel in accordance with that statement of faith. And you also want to build into your rules around trustees, that your trustees must be those who subscribe to the statement of faith. And you can include that uh, within the rules. So, You need to draw up that constitution and have it agreed amongst you. A lot of the detail in the charity commission um, model templates that they give you can be left as it is. It's very straightforward. It just Mm -hmm. explains how how the charity operates and what um, the trustees are responsible for and what their powers are. So the main things are that charitable object and making sure you include a statement of faith within that.
1: And did you, I mean, could you just simply copy and paste, for example, the Jerusalem Declaration or the Church of England Evangelical Council statement of faith, something like that? That would be OK, would it?
3: Absolutely. Yeah, there's no problem with doing that at all. And you may want to add to it um, anything of particular relevance um, at the moment. But those, there's no reason you can't just use those as a basis for your statement of faith.
1: So that, in terms of setting it up, is all we need to do. We don't even need to think about... Um, the future and what we might need to do and visible differentiation from the church of England, all that stuff is irrelevant at this point because you've drawn the object so widely, as long as it's within the statement of faith and the trustees sign up to the statement of faith and everything they do is within that spreading the gospel within that, then we've got to kind of carte blanche to work.
3: You may want to include in your um constitution some examples of how you may achieve your charitable object so you would state your charitable object and and I would suggest making it quite broad but then you may want to say um, as perhaps a second point uh, as to exactly how you see that being achieved Mm -hmm. Um, but that also forms part of the next step which is the charity commission uh, application Mm -hmm. so once you have agreed your constitution You then need to apply for charitable status and you do that through the Charity Commission website. Uh, Very easy to find that just by searching the internet for Charity Commission application. Um, And that process will then be, it will be an extension of your constitution by answering a lot of questions around how the charity will achieve its charitable object who the beneficiaries of that object will be. Will it be specific people or the general public? Um, It will also talk about how the charity will be funded. So will it be funded by donations or grants or by selling items? So you'll have to go through and answer all the questions that, um, that are presented to you in as much detail as you can. Uh, And then you also send to them your constitution that you have drafted as part of that application process. And obviously, at that time, you will need to name who the trustees will be uh, and give their personal details as part of that. So, can I just Um, clarify,
1: Colin? This is one thing that we're sending into the charity commissioners, which is our constitution plus the answers to all these detailed questions. And that goes in once together. It's not as if we've agreed the constitution you know, a month or two ago, and now we're doing the questions. It's all together at the same time.
3: I would certainly agree on and firm up your constitution that you're happy with first, and then... And then that finalised document will then be sent along with the application, the answers to the questions. Um, it will be just attached as a PDF attachment once you go through that process. But certainly if you agree that constitution first and then go through and answer the questions, some of the questions may lead you to look back at the constitution and say, well, maybe we may may need to change perhaps the wording somehow. But mm-hmm. um, generally speaking, I wouldn't say that's the case. I would do uh, do it in that order um, because you'll need to have that ready to send and submit once you've answered all the all the questions uh, that, are, that are posed to you. And what you.
1: about how many actual trustees you have on day one? We've talked a bit about the issues we've had recently with banks. Is there anything you could advise us on there? How many initial trustees?
3: Yeah, so the the standard uh constitution the model constitution suggests certainly you need at least three and i would advise you always have three at least so there Mm is you can have a majority decision Uh, you can specify a maximum within that constitution or you can leave it open so that it doesn't specify that Um, but certainly initially i would say it would be sensible to have some key people who are going to be involved in that perhaps those people who will be Part of the finance team who will be um, who will be those authorised at the bank to sign checks or uh, use online banking. Those are sort of key individuals you want to have on board at first, but it's often sensible to start with a smaller number um, in order to get things up and running, and then you can subsequently add new trustees once the the uh, charity has been formed. But also, you may want to do that after you've opened a bank account. Certainly, we have found in our own practice that charities being set up. uh, In fact, what the Charity Commission application, which used to be the most uh, arduous part of the task, actually now uh, is slightly easier than opening a bank account because of the the regulation (laughs) that um, banks are under for to to satisfy anti money laundering legislation uh, and to identify everyone that's um, a, a trustee and also to prove where the funds are coming from. So it may be sensible to perhaps start with a smaller number of trustees, um, have others who are on board mm-hmm. and are, are gonna come on board and become part of that new new charity, but perhaps open a bank account first and then appoint them at a later stage once that has been completed.
1: And any thoughts on, uh, particularly with the first three, um, Any thoughts on whether the vicar should or shouldn't be a trustee as chair of the PCC?
3: I certainly think that um, independence is a very important part of this.
1: Independence Uh, from the PCC, you mean?
3: Yes, that's right. You don't want to have something that is just seems to be a bolt-on to the existing PCC, almost like another fund. Mm -hmm. You want this charity charity to be completely independent of the PCC. The concern is that uh, in the future, should a church decide to leave the Church of England, that all funds held by the PCC will be redirected elsewhere or will be retained within that parish, but not available to any new church that is set up. And so independence is quite important and therefore when you gather your uh, your group of trustees, you want to make them as independent from the PCC as possible. It's good to have a crossover between the PCC and the trust because uh, those on the PCC will have a knowledge of the needs of the PCC. Um, and certainly in Hailsham, uh, David was our chair for um, both obviously the PCC and the trust for a period of time. And it was helpful to have that crossover, just uh, mm-hmm. to be able to to bring um, knowledge of, of the needs of the PCC across to the, uh, the trust. But what you want to aim for is a majority of trustees who are not on the PCC and also who are not connected to the PCC. So ideally, you don't want to have people whose spouses are on the PCC because there is still a connection there with the PCC.
1: Got it. So, but a majority of the trustees, once things are settled down, the dust is settled, and we've got a bank account and stuff, we want a we want a, a trust board, a number of trustees where the majority are clearly not connected with or on the PCC.
3: Absolutely, that's right. Um, and in Halesham, what we've done to date with our mission trust is to help fund staff on uh, who are working for. The PCC in Helsham. So, when we're doing that, we've asked the PCC to produce uh, an application for funding to uh, mm-hmm. the Mission Trust, uh, as they would with any other external charity, yep. uh, laying out their financial needs of staffing costs and asking for uh, a grant to be made to the PCC in order to cover some of the costs of employing staff. And that's how we at Helsham have have achieved our charitable purpose of spreading the the gospel in in our area is to fund workers in who, who are um, working alongside the PCC as part of that so we've given grants to the PCC to help cover those costs so being independent is important so that you can see that clear division between the two entities
1: and when you come to make a decision as a trust and say you yeah, know we are going to give we're gonna we're going to give the money that we've been requested as a grant application from the PCC to support this person who is a gospel minister here. What happens with any trustees who are also on the PCC? Is there not a clash of responsibility there?
3: There is. So in any charity, if a trustee has a vested interest in in any uh, discussion or transaction, then they should withdraw from any discussion about that so if for instance as as a mission trust you are deciding to grant money to the PCC then those members those trustees who are also members of the PCC should take a back seat with that discussion and shouldn't form part of any vote that is taken in order to approve that decision just again to maintain the independence of the trust from the PCC yeah. um, that's a good a good way to proceed a good policy okay
1: we've talked about how the trust in Howsham has been funding gospel ministry locally by particularly supporting the costs of a couple of um uh, nearly full-time employees there what about the issue of funding a possible uh, future independent Anglican Church if the Church of England does move away from its historic uh, doctrine formularies.
3: Sure so that was one of the other main reasons for setting up the trust so that there would be a vehicle there a charity there that could be used down the line Uh, as a church itself. So because the charitable object is broad and it is simply to spread the gospel, Mm -hmm. then the trustees could decide that in order to do that, they want to set up an actual church. And so what we did in Hailsham was to uh, calculate what we felt were Perhaps six months running costs of an independent church, looking at how much it would cost to employ staff, uh, costs of perhaps hiring a venue, uh, some equipment that we might need to see how much that might cost us over a six month period. Mm -hmm. And then to put aside reserves equal to that figure. Um, taking into account the giving we were receiving. So during those first six months, we would anticipate to continue to receive regular giving. So taking that into account, how much we would need to survive, as it were, that first initial six-month period as an independent church. And so we built up that reserve initially over the first year or so, And we hold that as a reserves policy, that that's the figure that we we maintain in order that it will be there for us to use, should we need to set up a a church independent of the PCC.
1: And presumably, uh, if that were to happen, more giving would come across than we'd expect. But we're taking a kind of worst case scenario. Those who are choosing as members of the congregation to give to the trust now, we assume would continue if a separate church was set up. Um, but we don't assume anybody else, any other donations would come in.
3: That's correct. Yeah, you, we would think that some yeah. giving would transfer across as well yeah. um, during that period to to enhance the, the amount of income that we receive. Yeah,
1: Colin, this is really, really helpful. We've, we're almost uh, up for our time. But just before we finish, any final tips you want to chuck out or any mistakes that you've made or the Trust in made that, you know, others could avoid?
3: I think really it's just those two things that I tried to reiterate when we were chatting. And that was firstly to do with a charitable object um, and to draw that up reasonably broadly. So it allows uh, the, the trust to operate in in any way it chooses in order to spread the gospel. So it allows mm-hmm. it to run a church or to employ people or to support other works that uh, spread the gospel. So drawing that quite broadly. And the second thing is just the tip about the number of trustees. I think um, ideally you want a good group of trustees, but perhaps initially it may be sensible to have three key individuals who are going to be part of that um, in order to get the charity set up and to get the bank account set up. And then once that's been done, then to expand that number, uh, to to increase that number.
1: And every member of the trustee, every trustee has to sign. Is it once a year they sign the Statement of Belief?
3: That's what we've done in Helsham, yeah, yeah. Just to and we said also in the constitution that if any trustee ceases to to um sign up to that um uh sign up to the statement of faith, then they will have to step down. Got it. Got yeah.
1: it. Okay. Uh Colin, David, thank you both very much indeed for taking time to just explain what you guys have done uh, down in Helsham. Um, And uh, thank you all very much indeed for listening. If you've got any particular questions you want to uh, bounce at somebody, by all means, uh, send me an email initially, tony at churchsociety.org. And I will see if I can either find an answer or or get back to you on that. Uh, But thanks again, Colin. Thanks again, David. And uh, to all of you out there in Church Society podcast land, have a great week.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Church Society podcast. You can find the whole podcast archive on our website, churchsociety.org. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your usual podcast app. And we'd love it if you are able to leave a review or give us a rating over there as well.